Welcome to episode 141 of the Left Behind Game Club. This week, we continue our Life is Strange series with episode 3, Chaos Theory. Let's get right into it. You're listening to the Left Behind Game Club. Welcome to the Left Behind Game Club, our never-ending attempt to make sure that no game is left behind. I'm your host, Jacob McCord, and today I have two friends with me. The first friend, you know him, you love him. His name is Michael Ruffalo. I am excited to talk about this episode. And here to talk about this episode is our Life is Strange expert aficionado, Flora Eloise. Ready for the mosh pit, Shaka Bra? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, man, that was so cringe. Uh, before we get into it, this is our third episode in our Life is Strange series. If you haven't listened to the first two episodes, I'd recommend you do that first and come back to this when you're ready. This week, we're diving into episode three, Chaos Theory. Why don't we just jump right in and start with the girls' dormitory? How, how do y'all feel about that? You know, if a uh, butterfly flaps its wings, uh, Chaos Theory. <laughs> I have so many thoughts about this episode. So does Flora. I'm sure you've got them too, Mike. Um, but this episode is it fair to say that like not a whole lot happens things happen it's definitely like the vibes episode like there's not much in the way of plot linearity there's very little in the way of meaningful choice that feels like fracturing your narrative apart but um the episode just kind of like meanders its way towards a pretty shocking conclusion um for better or for worse (laughs) you can say that again um i think i don't know what it was about this episode maybe it was the length Maybe maybe it was the lack of like puzzles that it pushes you through, but uh, or maybe it was because I used a bit of a walkthrough at points. Um, this is the this is the episode that I disliked the least. That you disliked the least. That you the liked the most. Yes. Uh, you could say. Well, I think if you said I liked it the most, it might give you the wrong impression about my feelings about this game. <laughs> So, it it's like an average episode in a sea of mediocre, something of that effect? Yeah, something to that effect. It was like, I think the other episodes, you know, without, without you know, jumping the gun too much, like, I think the other episodes I was just frustrated with a lot. Hmm. Um, that they were like, oh, the writing is pretty cringe, or the voice acting's not good, or uh, you could see this plot a mile away, or, you know, like, all all of those different bits. And this is the one where I was like, this thing knows what it is. It is what it is. Maybe it's just the fact that they, like, hit you with that Holden Caulfield reference right from the beginning. <laughs> but, it, yeah, this, this game just is, or this episode of the game is the least like trying for something that the other ones felt like it was and maybe i'm just like softer on this one than the rest but yeah i just i don't i'm not i was not as frustrated with this one as i was with some of the other episodes hmm how did you feel i felt uh, i had a bug in the middle of my playthrough so i don't think i'm the best person to talk about this that made me do 40 minutes of Hmm. my progress again um, I just felt like this one meandered in a way that the other t- other two episodes didn't, where they had a clear like beginning mm-hmm. end. This is a CW show that we are playing, and I'm enjoying it. This episode, I think, and I've never played this series before, just seemed like it didn't really fit and it didn't really push the story forward, except in the last like 20 minutes, where I'm like, oh, this will be a thing that will have consequences on the rest. Beyond that, I, I feel like we were just meandering. I don't know, Flora, if you felt the same way. I, I definitely did, especially on a replay. Um, as mentioned before, when I first sat down to play this game a couple of years ago, I played it in a binging sitting, so I was just kind of flowing through it all like a series of television, and so it didn't stick out to me that this episode didn't have all of the kind of mechanics and all of the shocking twists and turns, or at least like that I felt upon the first two episodes. Um, but 
I mean, the intro of this episode is quite ambient in a way that I do enjoy. Um, and it kind of feeds into a lot of just like character development in terms of emotional relationships between characters. So I, I do think that this episode serves to establish and just kind of like deepen certain things that uh, it, it's almost like taking a breather after jogging for a little while. Um, but I, I still personally, I like the little more bombastic elements of the series when they occur. Uh, if you've listened to episode two, you're probably like, hey, where's Mo? Well, we push him in the pool. And that's that on that. Mo got caught by the security guard. Are you sure you didn't throw a bone out into the road and you went and chased Ooh, it? Ooh. T- teasers for later. Uh, starts in the dormitory. I, I don't, I didn't really do much. I went right to outside the girls dorm. Did y'all wow. speak to Dana or anyone else in the dormitory? Yes. Yes, I did. But, but I will also say this is the episode where I was the least like concerned about making sure I got every like extra picture or poked around and learned as much as I could. I started this episode. I'm like, let's just beeline it. Let's go from, let's go just right to the end as quickly as I can. Hmm. It's interesting because I've also sort of been beelining this, at least on this replay, whereas I was observing everything on my first playthrough. And um, in particular, there's quite a lot to do. It's it's really kind of like when you think about how unusual it is for a game to pack so much side content and dialogue and little like lore details in an environment, also to just simultaneously give the, the option to just bypass all of that. Um, like in the dormitory itself, um, like Max is like asleep when the music is playing, when the like the scene kind of like opens up and the episode picks up and you can go into Victoria's room and you can talk to Dana, like you were mentioning. Um, there's also this character Taylor in the in the restroom who's like fretting about Kate's fate from episode two. Um, there's a lot of this just side stuff that ultimately doesn't matter, but it, it makes the world, at least in my experience, feel a little bit more lived in. Um, so I, I, I took my time in this in this replay to kind of like just see what everybody had to say. I engaged with a little bit of the side content around the diner uh, later in the game, um, but I, I think mm-hmm. for some reason I just felt a, a sense of urgency here that I needed to, you know, go find uh, Chloe, who is, mm-hmm. like, in the main building of the school. So imagine you're in the dorms, and then you have to sneak across the campus to make your way to the main campus, if you will. And that's when you, you know, when you leave, you go outside, and the principal, for some reason, is trying to get into one of the, the dorms close to yours. Yeah, it, it's like the boys' dorm, and he's sitting out on the porch, and he's clearly drunk. Um, and so, presumably, that's why he's having the difficulty. I think it's implied that he like lives there as sort of a nighttime chaperone, um, which is kind of a weird thing to imagine for the <laughs> president of this like, I cannot rich kid high school. I cannot harder. <laughs> it's a really weird series of like placements and assumed relationships um the boarding school nature of it is not lost on me but um yeah it, it's one of those sort of like you have to like do a pseudo stealth walk through right past him when he's muttering to himself on the porch and fumbling with the handle otherwise he'll kind of like interrupt you and call you out of the darkness while you're sneaking out to meet chloe and um there, there's a little bit of dialogue and seeing him kind of berate himself on how he handled or at least his administration handled um the kate situation from the previous episode but ultimately i find that presence of him uh on campus to be a little bit just out of place and just functionally as a player a little bit annoying um maybe that's just me and i understand what they're trying to do they're trying to you know in the, at the end of the last episode that's when you had the confrontation with the principal and where you had to make a choice between ratting out either david ratting out mr jefferson or ratting out uh, nathan prescott so i i kind of understand that but i think that in comparison to what you observe like right after with Victoria and Mr. Jefferson, like that had weight and that probably has consequences and implications for later in the game. But this Mr. Jefferson part was, or the the principal rather was just like, this is a stealth section that you just need to sneak mm-hmm. by clumsily. Yeah. That's, that interaction with Mr. Jefferson and Victoria in that later scene where on campus, like you see the two of them exiting the school building together at night alone. The, uh, the presumption is that Victoria is clearly hitting on Mr. Jefferson and like really trying to win his favor over through um, flirting with him in order to get placement in this photo competition. And um, it's just uh, as someone who is an educator, it's just a horrifying thing to just see casually presented in this game. 
Um, and Mr. Jefferson like shrugs her off and scolds her for making these advances. She calls him Mark as a way of like disarming the formality of it all. It's it's just squeamishness incarnate. I hate oh, it. it was so cringy. That that was I was the entire time I was just so uncomfortable watching that. And see, all I could think was, and maybe it's because my attraction is showing, but Mr. Jefferson, like I think, handled that really well, where he at first was like. Hey, I'm going to pretend like that didn't happen and we're just going to move on. And then Mm -hmm. she advanced again and he was like, well, I'm not going to undermine your professional career, but you need to stop this right Mm -hmm. now and we're done. Uh, Maybe my bias is showing, but I think he handled that pretty well. Yeah. I mean, there's no other way to handle it. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I was I was grossed out. It it also made me that was that was a moment that made me realize like, oh, the audience for this game is much younger. Like it's, it is not, it's, it's not an adult audience. Like I can't be judging this through the lens of a 30 year old guy being like, man, this story's cringy, you know, like I, I need to, I need to kind of give it a little bit more um, understanding, I guess Mm -hmm. uh, of, of who they're going after. So yeah, like again, not to, not to beat this moment too hard, but when you ultimately then sneak into the school and into the principal's office and you see uh, a flappy red hat that uh, that is just like holding Caulfield's and Max says, oh, only phonies wear hats like that. Like, <laughs> yes, that is that is a reference for a young kid who is reading uh, Catcher in the Rye for the first time or has just read it. It's not for like an adult who read it 15 years ago, <laughs> you know? So, uh, yeah, it, this, this is the moment where it just realigned my expectation of who this game is for and, uh, to not expect much from it as, as very weird as it is this one moment, because mm. no, no, every adult watching this should be cringing like crazy, but I can understand how like a teenager, might not. Then how do you explain like certain television shows and, and maybe you don't feel this way, but I feel certain television shows, the OC, One Tree Hill, like are timeless. I disagree with your assumption that it's timeless. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's a there's an element of timelessness to it. I think definitely maybe some of it doesn't pass the twenty twenties, but I think that compared to Life is Strange, like the OC One Tree Hill has maybe a little more I don't know how to nicely say this, but get me. No, no, I love you dearly, but you're take the sugar, the soda can, the duct tape, the sodium chlorate and throw it in my face. Create a little pipe bomb out of all your nostalgic loves. Um, Yeah. CM Punk uh, me. Go for it. Any of any of your experience, I think watching those shows back is not a reflection of that show being timeless as you age and more a function of your nostalgia because those were teenage shows for you at a period in time. Um, I would expect in the same way that if you went back and watched Dawson's Creek, it would not be timeless for you in the same way that someone who grew up with it, you know, feels like Dawson's Creek is, is timeless in a way. Um, so yeah, all of that to say, I, I think that's more nostalgia than it is uh, it actually being a timeless piece of, of media. Here's what I'd love. If you're listening to this and you're part of our Discord community, I would love to know what show like you have the biggest nostalgia glasses for. And maybe you can back me up and say that One Tree Hill and the OC aren't that cringe. <laughs> I think I think if when was the last time you watched that? Sorry to make this about One Tree Hill and, uh, and all of that, but when I was watched the, last the OC through I watched season four of the OC for the first time, maybe five years or less ago. And I went, I got through it and I was like, okay, yes. And I I watched the Chris Mika episode of the OC every other year or so. Mike's like, I got nothing. (laughs) (sighs) Who knows, man? Who knows? Different strokes for different folks. Uh, Warren sends a text with a bomb recipe because that's how you have to get into the principal's (laughs) office. What a what a weird moment, uh-huh, right? He's like, "Hey, chemistry, blow up his office." Totally hypothetical, you know. And then the thing that blows my mind—no pun intended—is you go through all of this effort to find all of the ingredients and build this bomb, 
and then do magical time powers that just put you on the other side of the door. And I could not logically figure out how that actually functionally worked. Like I understood the ability to like pause time in some ways, but I did not understand the ability to change where you are in time from like a physical perspective. I kind of feel like that was established a little bit in the previous episode where um, Kate is on top of the roof uh, about to jump and her Max's powers sort of freeze up and she is like kind of like just stalling time all at once like the raindrops freeze in midair and people aren't moving any longer and she's you know inching her way up to the dorm and um to some extent um that's a much more extreme version of what happens here um to me it didn't actually strike me as like a weird use of the powers necessarily um rather it's like okay we open the door and then you physically move and then you rewind like that struck me as just like normal but then again just about any time travel like story is going to have these sort of logical holes that just function like uh, Mobius strips of logic that uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if we really need to solve, but it's curious that that didn't work for you. I didn't think about it twice. It, uh, yeah, and I don't think that it was something that I spent that much time thinking about. I thought it was like, this is kind of weird and not what I was expecting our powers would actually be able to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, again, I kind of refocused myself and I was like, ah, I'm looking at this too critically. I'm looking at this too, uh, from, from a more like mature lens than maybe I should, I should just like go along with some of this stuff. And you know, this is the episode where I just went along with more things where Hmm. I was just like, yeah, sure. Let's, let's just keep going. I'm not, I'm not going to think too hard about that. The purpose of being in that office was just to gather Intel about some of the students that are part of the Academy so basically get into his files and see what's said about the students. Um, that's when you get your first decision, which I think is probably the only decision in my mind that actually might have consequences like that matter uh, later on. There's a large pile of money inside the principal's uh, desk that is for, correct me if I'm wrong here, but some sort of uh, like student fund, I believe is how they, how they pitch it. Uh, and you either have the choice, it's like five grand, you can either take it um, to help Chloe pay off her debts, or you can leave it. Uh, this one was surprisingly f- like close to 50-50, because I took the money and felt like a heel doing it. I'm mm. amazed that anyone took the money. Because it's just like, do you want to steal from the poor? Do you want to... Like, who do... Who, <laughs> it was just like, it was like a very easy ethical decision. It's like, ah, should you steal from these people who are... Uh, who are relying on this money or not, you know? It's obviously a horrible thing to do, and I'm actually kind of shocked that it's framed as a decision in the first place, like a major decision. Um, and and those major decisions are rare in these episodes. There's usually like five of them. This episode has four, I believe. And um, it, it strikes me as such an obvious, like this should be a 95% of players didn't steal the money from the disabled people. Um, it And here's the thought. Um, when I originally played the episode, it struck me as that morally obvious. Um, I didn't take the money. I left it in the drawer and I was like, what the heck, Chloe? Like once again, like that's kind of a horrible thing to do. Just kind of fitting the bill of how, um, selfish Chloe is uh, because Chloe wants to take the money in order to pay off a debt to this character, Frank. Um, but in this playthrough, I really thought about it and I have kind of a, kind of a stupid theory, but I'm going to say it now. Um, uh, It crossed my mind that Principal Wells, when he was muttering to himself, um, he might be taking money from the Prescott family. Um, And I was thinking this might be some, like, it's labeled as this fund, this this kind of good cause donation money, when in fact it might just be a bribe of some sorts. Uh, I don't have really much evidence to back this up, but I was thinking about it, and framing it that way i wonder if the money actually would be going to this relief um for these people or not in the first place so i made the decision to take the money in this playthrough just to see what would happen and i was shocked to see that at least on the remastered collection 66 percent of people took the money um i'm jaw dropped at yeah exactly just wow Wow. i was nodding my head so aggressively that you could have probably heard it in my microphone the reason I stole the money was not because of the cause. I stole the money because I felt like Principal the Principal Wells is not someone to be trusted. Like, why do you just have five thousand dollars cash 
in your drawer. Like if it was a charity, you probably would have records. It probably wouldn't be, it might be a check. It might be changed from uh, like, why do you have that money in your desk drawer? I didn't trust him and thought that money was either like not for that illegally obtained was for another purpose. And so that it wasn't a slight against the charity for me. It was a, I don't trust the principal. The principal has not sided with me in any way by extension is responsible for the things that have happened at the school. So this is my way of getting back at him. I'm going to steal this money. But I don't think you get back at him. No, you don't. Like, it's not like he's suddenly going to have to pay for it out of his own pocket. You know, it just means. Unless it's a bribe. I, okay. Like, I also (laughs) kind of have a tough time imagining that uh, the the bribe would be in cash. That the bribe would. Am I stretching again, Mike? Look, it just, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't add up to me. But uh, but hey, it's we stretch. all have different uh, ethical math. I, I think we can all agree it's a horrible thing to take money from a charity, especially people who are vulnerable and in need of that income. Uh, so um, I, I'm we're all nodding. Yet one of us took the money. Uh, two of us uh, took the I money. Definitely, two. Well, two sorry. Of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like one of us did it just to see a different, yeah, yeah, just to see a different uh, outcome. Uh, another of us said, "This is dirty money, and it will be mine. It will be even dirtier because it's mine now." You know what helped me cleanse myself of the dirty money? A swim in the pool. Gross. I hate chlorine hair. Let's go. Uh, okay. So we uh, we then escape from the principal's office, which was the most lockdown, uh, lockdown room. Yeah, it's so strange that this guy would have a lot of money locked behind uh, his personal office. But uh, yeah, we then run to the pool for, uh, for a little dip. Uh, and... Where do, where do we want to start there? You can choose right. between boys and girls bathroom, and that's essentially right. a dialogue choice where it's, you know, if you go in the boys bathroom, Chloe calls you a pervert, um, but it, you can go in the women's washroom as well. Uh, and you just turn on the lights and have a little, like, swim fan-esque dip with uh, with your friend True. Chloe. There, this was I, the most, I don't, I don't know if this is the moment, but I realized this episode had a lot of just, like, longer CGI cutscene than it did, like puzzle you need to figure out mm-hmm. yeah this scene strikes me like i mentioned at the top of this that this episode is kind of like vibes um this the swimming pool scene is basically just that like this low-key bonding where they get to do something silly and just kind of um it's it's obviously a very fan servicey moment which makes me feel a little bit squeamish um like i normally don't care about stuff like that but it's just kind of a oddly presented scene and they like splash each other with these very stiff animations like you do when you're a kid <laughs> and um uh, but the the conversations that they have about how max's powers are changing her a bit and how they are both chloe and max glad that they've re- uh, reconnected and all of that i think is a series of really just kind of sweet moments where you don't like mike says have to like do much necessarily you just kind of take in and as i mentioned earlier just the relationship kind of like sinks in settles and deepens a bit um and after the swimming pool, there's a couple things you can do around the swimming pool, including like you can find a guest list um, to an upcoming party at the Vortex Club. It's like tucked away behind some um, like furniture out on the pool deck and you can erase some people's names from the guest list and you can add your own name to the guest list. And uh, I went ahead and did both of those things um, for better or for worse. And um the scene kind of culminates in you getting busted by security. Um, the commotion of breaking into the school building, and um, I don't, I don't know that the link is terribly clear between what really prompted the whole security team to come out in full flashlight force. But um, they sort of like chase you through another oddly stealth sequence, um, and yeah, it's just, just a series of kind of just vibes, really. Hiding in the toilet stall. Logically, it didn't really make sense as to your point in that like. The first time you take Warren's bomb to blow up the door, the fire alarm goes off, and then you rewind, and you're in the office. Uh, the fire alarm doesn't go off when you when you explode the bomb inside the office, but I guess security is alar- is like warned to the fact that someone blew something up. But why wouldn't they be there immediately? Like there are some like weird leaps in logic. Uh, it's fair to say there are nine minor choices in this episode, and most of them are like, hey. Did you write your name on the list? Did you erase this message? Did you like help someone with their exam? And in, in my case, all but one of them, I did. 
Speaking of binary choices, I forgot to follow up on this point. We made a deal last time to talk about the plant, which apparently is named Lisa in your dorm. Um, I killed Lisa despite my efforts. I watered it both times, which apparently is too much for the plant. And I'm so upset with myself. Um, like, I was, like, really trying to care for this thing in this playthrough, and I've already killed it by episode three. Oh, wow. What a plant mom. <laughs> interestingly enough on on our platform on the remastered xbox version uh lisa dies about 50 percent of the time so i killed lisa too but i'm bad with plants it's understandable i don't think i watered her this this last time i definitely looked at her but did not water at water her hmm. um you get out of the school and you make your way to uh chloe's house mm-hmm. and at the house the second major choice happens which again is in my mind, not major in any way. Uh, there's a moment where uh, you uh, get into uh, Amber um, Amber's clothing. Rachel Amber? Rachel Amber. Yeah, for yeah. some reason this says Amber, sorry. You get into Rachel Amber's Rachel clothing, Amber. yeah. and at one point there's a joke exchange about, like, I dare you wouldn't kiss me, and then you have the option to either kiss Chloe or not kiss Chloe. Uh, I don't know, Flora, did you kiss Chloe or not kiss Chloe? I, I definitely did, and um, I don't know how clear I've made this, but I definitely, in the first playthrough, now that we're at the point of really kind of making decisions like this, um, I was fully invested in, like, the relationship between Chloe and Max, and I was, like, sh- you know, fully shipping them the whole time, and so uh, when I saw that the kiss option was there, I was like, yes, this is, like, what I thought this was leading to anyway, um, and it was one of the first games where there were, like, any explicit queer them or queer themes in them, and um, so I was pretty excited to be able to, like, make that decision as the character, um, but I I think the way that it's handled is quite strict like the the reaction that chloe gives after daring you is she's like oh you're hardcore max and she like backs up and like laughs it off and it just it totally nothing gets followed up in the episode about it um mike what yeah. did you do very very weird uh totally went for the kiss um not be and i thought it was kind of weird in that like i did not get any hints that there was an attraction you know, leading up to this, it felt like very out of the blue. Um, mm. Maybe I missed all the hints along the way, um, but it, it felt like it was very like platonic love to being like, hey, we should kiss. And I was like, ah, whatever, let's just lean into it. That's that's the type of uh, it's the type of mood that I'm into right now. Um, but yeah, definitely felt out of the norm, especially because it seems like this game spent a lot of time setting up Warren as the love interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was, yeah, just felt like someone grabbed the steering wheel of the car and like pulled me over three lanes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, trying to roll with it. You know what I mean? Going with it, trying things out. There's trying a French writer out. in the room in episode three writing who just says, we make them kiss. And that's, <laughs> I feel like what happened here. <laughs> yeah, I felt the same way. Platonic love and we're shipping them for some reason, but I had consent, so I, I was going to do it because I felt it was playful. Uh, and in our case, uh, I'm looking at the numbers here, uh, 86% of people on our platform kiss Chloe. A lot of the decisions were lopsided in this in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, not much more to say about that. There is one thing to consider, which is that, like, Warren is still, like, a romanceable character, and you can play your Max that way. Like, it's not cut off whether or not you kiss Chloe, um, but that that becomes, for the sake of, like, that potential relationship, like, an indicative sort of action that will inform later sort of patterns of, you know, interactions. But um, one of the things before we move past this scene in the bedroom that I want to make sure I linger on is... Um, for some reason, um, we I, I struggle to bring up the music in these games when we have these discussions about these episodes, but this scene starts off with Max and Chloe laying in bed together, um, just kind of a slow series of angles, just cameras slow panning throughout the room, and there's a song by Bright Eyes, which is like a really kind of like depressing singer-songwriter sort of thing, and the song I think is called Lua. It's just really, really immaculate, just... I, I've been there before, just waking up like early morning, like the sun is peeking through your room. No, like you're not really talking, you're just awake and you're just like just enjoying the space and the time and not having to like go back into the world. And I think that the beginning of this scene captures that just so well. And I don't know how long either of you spent laying in that bed, but you can kind of just let the whole like four minute song play out. And um, I remember distinctly in the original playthrough, just kind of 
soaking that in. And in this playthrough, you'd think that I would just click through it and move on. But I've listened to the soundtrack so many times that at this point, that song is just like one of my favorites on the on the whole record. And um, I, it's just a, a wonderful moment within the episode, even though there's I, nothing to do. <laughs> I love that moment. Uh, so I'm a big Connor Oberst fan. I love Bright Eyes. Uh, I, I thought I couldn't skip that. Because I, I think I tried every button on the controller aside from B, which gets you out of it. And, uh, and I'm glad that I ended up not hitting B because I just sat there and listened to the whole song. And I thought, man, this is a very weird choice uh, that they would make you sit here and listen to this whole song. And I thought, like, ah, well, licensing songs can be expensive. Maybe they're really trying to get their, their value out of this. Um <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, I listened to the whole thing and then I got up and you can listen to it again if you go over to the stereo. It gives you an option between uh, the Bright Eyes track. It gives you an option between Sparkle Horse, which I thought was a crazy addition to put on here, but also like fit very well. Uh, and I think there was another, I don't know if either of you happen to remember it, but uh, yeah, all very good, all very, very good options. I just happened to, by mistake, pick uh, Bright Eyes again. And uh, I was like, okay, let's let's move through this. I'm, I've I've heard this song enough. I was texting a little bit during that uh, moment, and I think I texted for I don't know thirty seconds, then looked up, and again, just like basked in like the the moment, which is unlike me. Like usually, I'm like, okay, let's keep going through this. And what I found actually about the soundtrack is the soundtrack is actually bleeding into my like personal listening time. I'm not actually like listening to the life is strange soundtrack, but Flora and I were talking about this before we started recording, but I'm picking songs. Like I just, I'm obsessed with young, the giant right now. And I don't, and I've never been a young, the giant fan. And I feel like, although it's not on the soundtrack, like young, the giants, like mind over matter could fit in life is strange alongside the rest of the soundtrack. Yeah, I really think it'd be fun to like make like a fan playlist for this game. Like, I can already think of like five different artists that would totally fit the vibes. Floor, I think what we're gonna do, and I, I'm gonna say this into a microphone, so now it has to happen, is when we're finished this series, we're gonna put out like basically a mixtape slash podcast where it's a Spotify playlist of like the episodes, and then maybe like 20 tracks that fit the vibe. That would be really. We fun. should have totally done that for Emily's away. Now that you say this, it's not too late. Oh. Oh, maybe we spent some time doing that. Uh, I think it's a great idea. You make your way downstairs and you get a delicious breakfast choice. I wish this was a choice. Did y'all pick pancakes or bacon and eggs? Bacon and eggies, baby. Bacon and eggs. They had such a cute moment, too. She's like, I love ba-. the whole rest of the episode. She kept bringing up bacon when she went in the diner or whatever. Yeah, I, I really that was that was neat. I like that. The one thing that I hated, though, is the contrivance to go to two different locations to get the ingredients. Like, why are the eggs not in the fridge? Like, they're by the front door. <laughs> yeah, and when I couldn't, when I opened the fridge and only found one of the two ingredients, I was like, "Where am I supposed to find eggs in this house? <laughs> am I supposed to find it like above the fireplace? Am I supposed to find it like on the couch? Like, there's no logical place for me to go look. So it just forced me to run around the house a bit until I eventually saw a bag by the front door. I don't remember any prompt in the story that gave us the. Uh, that would have given us the assumption that she had just come in with uh, mm-hmm. with groceries. So, yeah, I was pretty frustrated with that. Yeah, there's a few things in this living room scene that are just sort of out of place like that. Like, eventually you have to look for um, a pair of keys in this environment, which I think is just similarly just trial and error, just brute force, look at every single thing. There's also a message on the, um, like the house phone that you can either erase or not erase, having to do with um, Chloe and... Um, I, I ended up erasing it both times. I don't know about either of you, but that felt like just an easy way to cover the tracks. Um, I was like, no, I'm just playing it. I just want to hear what's going on here, and I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not gonna play defense on this. Yeah, uh, I didn't erase the voice message either because it was a cop saying like, "Hey, she was at the school causing trouble." And eventually Joyce sits you down with like a photo album to kind of like talk about like reminiscing like, oh, I've missed you so much and you've grown up and look at all these old memories that we have. And um, this starts to kind of foreshadow what happens later in the episode about like using photographs as a way to like access the past through Max's time travel. Um, But in that scene, while Joyce is being like sincere and whatnot, Chloe decides to like fake an argument with her mother um, about like... um, 
I don't even remember what it's about. It's just so incredibly contrived, but it allows um, a distraction to occur so that Max can kind of like go about the rest of the house. And um, she's seeking passwords for David's computer. Every um, They've decided, all right, David is up to no good. He's He was clearly bullying Kate. He's clearly been stalking people. Um, they found a bit of evidence that they want to pursue. And so um, they think if they can get onto his laptop, um, that they'll be able to like get to the bottom of this whole mystery. Um, that garage scene where there's a million different prompts. I, I don't know how long either of you spent there, but there's there's like four separate like classification trees of types of passwords that you can Ugh. find. What did y'all make of that? Uh, I found every every clue and hint except the, the right one uh and was so frustrated because <laughs> that so one's in such a it's like under your uh in your car dash mm-hmm. and it's Sounds like right. a meal ticket of their first date and you have to grab the date off their first date they deliberately deliberately did that to make you explore the whole garage but mm-hmm. i just was not about it i'm with you mike yeah it was it was frustrating because you find the clue but then you have to press right to find the other clue in the exact same location when uh, you're never, never, I think, at any other point, given the given the uh, assumption that if you find a piece, you have to, like, explore the whole piece to understand all the clues within it. Yeah, if there's a book uh, and there's three pages in the book, like, you never have to flip through all three, like, the relevant information's on the first page. But this exactly. one is, she wrote, um, Chloe's mother wrote a note on the front of, like, a receipt at the diner being like, hey, mm-hmm. you're cute. And then on the back is the receipt with the date on it, which is the information you need to get into the computer. To realize that David is, again, we already know this, he's spying and he's built profiles on everyone and then you take that information in the house for the third major choice in this game. I, I would just echo Flora. I think it was such a very weird teenage moment of like, I'm just picking a fight with my mom because I'm an angry teenager and mm-hmm. there's no real reason for this fight. And uh, her name's Joyce, right? The mother's name's Joyce. Yeah. She's basically like, you're impossible sometimes. Like I said nothing that should be a fight here. And mm-hmm. this is suddenly like an issue. Uh, and that leads into David coming in. And uh, and an argument between David, Joyce, Chloe, and Max. And Max is given the choice, who do you side with? Do you side with David or do you side with Chloe? And it's again, seems like a very weird non-question. Uh, because do I think David is guilty? Uh, no. But do I think what he, he deserves anyone on his side in this moment? Also, no. Um, it, it just seemed like a very weird, like, of course I'm going to take Chloe's side on this. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't make sense for me to take David's side ever. Yeah, and especially in terms of, like, what we've already established about this episode, like, spending time with Chloe, like, in the swimming pool and having, like, the kiss and things like that. Like, there's really no reason to side against her. Like, you've really just built up the relationship the whole time. So it's an incredibly unusual place to put this choice. Um, I do want to say, though, briefly that I love some of the characterization of David in his dialogue here. So he has some really choice lines about, like, PC college campuses and political, like, uh, entitled kids taking over and just, um, they really want to build up the, the stereotype as much as they can uh, for his character. And I, th- I think that some of those lines are, are just quite revealing over uh, his value system. And just remind me, because I, I seem to have forgotten this point, th- at the, the final choice of episode two gives you the option of blaming one of three people. Mm-hmm. Is there a scenario where David doesn't lose his job? I actually don't know. Um, I, I played that line of the story um, almost the exact same way that I did the first time. So I don't I don't think I've seen any different outcomes there. Okay, because he's coming in like raging. And so I wonder yeah. if there's a different way. But yeah, a lot of the decisions in this episode are a little lopsided. So um, I, I don't know if there's much more to say. Now we can move to the to the diner, right? Yeah, so you go down to the Two Whales Diner to, like, snoop on Frank in his RV, and um, there's a bunch of, like, optional things you can do, like, especially if you're going for the 100% run on the episodes, there's a number of, like, optional photographs, including this really disturbing, it's a minor thing, but, like, there's, like, a swirl of ants, like, around, like, a carcass on the ground, like, there's just... There's also like a um, a homeless lady who, um, when I first played it, I couldn't help but think, is this Max from the future? Is is there like some weird like throwback? Um, this isn't necessarily confirmed or anything. It's just a kind of a loose theory. Um, I guess I was doing a lot of theorizing in this episode, but um, 
along the way with the diner scene, you enter and there's like a sort of three-way puzzle conversation between a police officer, uh, Nathan Prescott, who happens to be kind of like muttering to himself in a booth, and Frank, whose uh, RV you're trying to bust into. And um, I, I don't know how y'all felt about that sort of like dialogue, fast forward, rewind. You access more parts of the conversation the more you get to learn about things like a blood ritual um, and other details. Uh, but my favorite standout line that I had to write down is is um, you can mess with Frank before you like really get into all of this and you can just bully him at his booth. And um, one of the ways like you can like pick up his plate and like spill it on the floor and he gets up and yells at you i was eating those beans and then he steps in them and slips um <laughs> i it's so childish but i i sat there and just kind of like just taunted him for a minute before i proceeded with it all doesn't he say it twice um, too he's like those are my beans <laughs> yeah you can pour his beer over his uh over his head or on his lap mm-hmm. um yeah, I, what I appreciated about this, like, quote-unquote puzzle is that it was relatively painless. You just knew what you needed to do each time, and, and once you got that bit of info, you checked in with the same group of people, you just fast-forwarded through all the dialogue that you didn't need and found that additional piece. It, it was not a hard puzzle, uh, and you moved through it pretty quickly. I had a, a bug here where I, I proceeded to do the puzzle, get the key, get to the RV, and I don't know if Chloe was not in the right position or not, but I couldn't move the story forward because Chloe was either clipped into the trailer or there was a bug with like not being able to, to access her, so I had to go back 30 minutes. So it was a little frustrating to do it twice. Um, I needed to say that out loud to say this game is occasionally buggy and be ready for that, but uh, this part was fine you just reminded me i had another inexplicable bug in this scene it was prior to going inside of the diner myself but i happened to for whatever reason like twist my character around with my analog stick and i got stuck in one place on the sidewalk and i was about to abort the game and just restart but i sat there for like a solid two minutes just trying to get max unstuck and finally um just a combination of buttons was able to get out so yeah you're not wrong like this remastered version is pretty rushed all things considered. I think I got stuck in the door, which is what caused the problem, but uh, I, w- I won't be belabor the point. This is much better than trying to find a bug on the jukebox, I guess. Oh, man. So much better. So much better. Um, which that then brings us to our next uh, key choice in the game. Are you going to kill Frank's dog or not? Uh, which, again, just does not feel like a real choice at any point. So uh, what, what ends up happening is Frank has a pretty... It sounds like vicious dog inside his RV, and when uh, when you open the door, you have a bone there ready to keep him preoccupied. And the decision you're faced with is: do you throw the bone in the street, or do you throw it further back into the parking lot? And it just seems needlessly cruel to throw the the bone into the street and potentially kill the dog. Ninety six percent of players, at least on the Xbox remaster. Mm-hmm. kept Frank's dog from harm. And I get that. That is not a good choice. Yeah, I think it's really ultimately there just as shock value. I don't think it's a meaningful decision. It's just, oh, no, I didn't realize that this was actually going to harm the dog. Um, and maybe, and I don't wish this upon, uh, I think the dog's name is Pompadou. Um, I don't wish it upon Pompadou, but um, like maybe in the parking lot, there could have been something else similarly threatening, like someone's like backing up without looking or whatever. Um, but yeah, like it's just a no-brainer. You, you don't harm the animal. Um, but you it's also the- like you don't steal from handicapped kids I, I do have no moral ground to stand on at this <laughs> point <laughs> uh, can we just talk about something really um, fast uh, all the dead birds mm-hmm. did y'all notice all the dead birds totally. all over the episode that's this yeah. episode's phenomenon I guess we don't have a snow or a or tornado but we have or dead birds did you have any interpretation of the significance of them? Because for me, it feels kind of like connected to something we've already seen. But I'm wondering how playing it for the first time you read that presence. I was just trying to like think because I just finished playing it and I, I couldn't remember like, hey, is it like Dante's Inferno where it's like seven different layers of hell and one of them's pestilence or Darksiders is based on like the four horsemen, which each have like it's like pestilence and death. I just... I couldn't figure out the significance, but I figured someone smarter than me could say, hey, they're actually like, this is like the seven layers of grief or whatever. Like this had some significance to mm. literature. Michael, anything? Pull it out of your big brain. 
Flora, nothing, nothing out of your big nothing. brain? Nothing. I don't have a firm interpretation, but like it, it definitely feels supernatural in origin and somewhat connected to the like tornado oncoming. Like you can imagine that these like incredibly powerful winds would have tired out and exhausted and potentially killed these birds, you know, like kind of uh, this is like an omen, like directly foreshadowing that specific storm that like I, I don't really know if it's deeper than that. I think there that probably would be a cool YouTube video essay, um, but I don't have significance of birds. I think this episode very squarely put me in the camp of uh they will hit you over the head with a symbol if it's there you know like they won't Mm -hmm. they're not very subtle like this game is not very subtle with any of its like again the holding caulfield hat in the principal's office is the least subtle thing in the in in the game and it's like Mm -hmm. yeah this game is not subtle about these things so um I took that at face value because I, because nothing jumped out at me as a like potential reference that it was trying to make. Get inside the RV, and Frank's a pig, a disgusting, disgusting pig who's got his crap everywhere, and yeah. that's when you just need to kind of find out like, hey, did he do some nasty stuff with Rachel? What kind of dirt can we get in on him? And we learn that the man, you know, takes prescription drugs of some kind. He's a slob, and that he had a real, honest, earnest relationship with Rachel Amber. Despite what Chloe says. Because Chloe Chloe hates him. And I mean, Chloe's indebted to him and hates him for multiple reasons, but hated him most, I think, for his relationship with Rachel. Definitely. That seems to be like a source of her having a bit of an emotional meltdown at the end of this scene. Um, there's there's a couple things like you, you have to like pry this little like journal of photos and letters from like of Rachel and from Rachel uh, out of like his little like air vent somewhere in his bedroom. And so um, you can tell like just by virtue of how he has hidden it away that this is an incredibly special but secretive part of his life. Um, and Chloe is obviously in denial about any of this in the first place ever happening because she had felt that her relationship with Rachel was really like intimate and honest. And she's still a little bit, um, in the way that she's lost her father, like he's died. Like she feels everyone in her life has abandoned her. And there's a bit of doubt about like, is Rachel okay? And did she run away? Because, you know, did she not just tell me because she actually was getting tired of our relationship and wanted to cut me off. And so I think that she can read it on like a number of those levels of like betrayal and abandonment um and so it's it's a pretty challenging scene for chloe emotionally um there's also i i don't know if this is if this played out identically for either either of you but um if frank took the gun from you in the previous episode you can get the gun you have the option to either take it or leave it uh from the rv um so weird little full circle thing maybe mo if we had told him that you could steal it out of the rv would have been incentivized to play episode three but um but ultimately, I, I decided to leave the gun there. Um, I, I'm not a fan of firearms, but um, there there are some potential implications of interacting with that. I don't know what y'all did. I didn't realize you could take the gun because uh, there's a moment in the garage where David, you you see his gun case and it's locked and you can go up to it and say, oh, I guess I can't return the gun now because David would know that I took it mm-hmm. in the first place. But I didn't realize in the RV that you mm-hmm. could actually take that firearm. I didn't know. Sorry, I did. I did not take it. I didn't re- realize you could. I think I just kind of moved through this as again quickly as I could. I think I because you grab a knife to kind of uh, pry open the uh, the the grate that had the journal in it. So my thought was like, hey, if he comes in here, I already have a weapon that I can use against him, so I don't need the gun. So that's why I'm like, ah, I've got a knife, I'm good. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why I just kept moving. That's exactly what I did. I held on to the knife. Which didn't come into play but at you all. you never know. It's always good to have a knife on you. You never know. Uh, you leave. Chloe's mad about the Rachel situation. Uh, you get in the truck and... That's when the final part of the game is initiated, as Max is looking at old pictures back at Chloe's place, right? Yeah, in the truck, um, Chloe, she's having that meltdown about Rachel, and then she starts to blame her father for the fact that he died. Um, like, his, like her mother had um, wanted to ride home from work, and he was, you know, just going to be a nice guy and go pick her up and bring her back home. Um, and he died in a car accident. And so she she has internalized this trauma in a really unhealthy way where she just like completely is, is 
um, denying and resenting her father for the decision that he made that day as if, you know, that was something he decided, again, to abandon her in some some really strange interpretation of those events. And so strange. Max is on the receiving end. Oh, no, I did it. Um, I, I actually pulled open a list of synonyms for the word strange earlier. <laughs> I just did. I've completely gone blank on uh, them. That was your first um, one. So well done. Okay. Um, the um, So Max is on the receiving end of like this this emotional tirade from Chloe about her father. And then she's back in her dorm looking at photos where she sees a time that reminds her of um, Chloe's father, like when they were quite young, um, back when Max used to live here and they were really like besties and whatnot. Um, and so we get access to Max's new power in this scene. Um, she is able to travel back in time to her 11-year-old self uh, in order to hopefully save Chloe's dad, William. Uh, and she hopes that in doing so, like maybe this can kind of piece Chloe back together a bit, if nothing else. Uh, so I think they did a really good job de-aging the girls um, and bringing them back to like, what, a 13-year-old girl's body or something? Okay, yeah. I thought they did a really good job because you can still recognize them as them, but just a younger version. And they didn't do the thing that is usually done with, you know, uh, showing a character when they're younger, which is like giving them bad bangs um, or something like that. Like this was legitimately, <laughs> they just made kid versions of them. And um, yeah, I was, I was impressed with how, how good they did, especially with, uh, with Chloe, because Chloe is both recognizable and, clearly a different person before before the trauma happens to her what i appreciated in that scene is that they in a few ways kind of set the scene and foreshadowed like some of the elements that were going to be taken from her childhood through to her more adult self at one point you pick up the table and you see like an anime character with blue hair and uh, you know max is like oh she loves anime and you can clearly see that the hair is why she loved that character, so she dyed her hair blue. And there's a, a couple of those moments strewn about. And I thought that that was nice. And if you lived in the moment a little bit, like we did when we were on the bed listening to music, you could appreciate how, despite her trauma, uh, you can understand how Chloe came to be the, the woman that she so, is. So yeah, in this flashback scene, um, we start to see how kindly her father was and uh, how valuable of like a father figure role he was not only to Chloe, but to Max as well, like just completely welcoming her in as if she was like his own surrogate daughter, so to speak. Um, and he gets the call that leads to his fatal accident. And um, there's not really much for you to do other than wait throughout this sequence. But the one thing that you then are initiated to do is to try and steal his keys. So um, in, in making it to where he can't go pick up Joyce from work, um, he'll never take the drive that would lead to his accident in the first place. And um, the keys are hidden under a hat on a table somewhere. Um, I, I find the location of that to be... Maybe it's just me. I have like a key rack in my house. Like when I walk in, the first thing I do is I hang my keys. Like I've never lost my keys before. I lo um, Okay. Just so you know, I lose my keys under hats all the time. Stop <laughs> it. I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. So this, that was one of the first places I looked. Really? Oh I'm my not God. even kidding. Having already played it before, I, I forgot where it was. And I looked at like everything again. I looked at the plant. I looked at like just all the things around the room. Um, that's funny that that was like almost instinctual for you. Yes. I have a key bowl in my house, so I, I needed to look around a little bit. Uh, I need that's to know, though. That's just for your you parties. <laughs> you grab the keys. Do you have more than one place to throw them? Because for some reason, I thought the oh, sink yeah. was yeah. the best place to throw them in. Oh, you can throw them in a billion different jars or little like crevices. You can put them in the cookie container. You can put them all over the place. Mm -hmm. But I think the only one that actually works, and correct me if I'm wrong, is out the window. You throw it outside. I, I think J Jacob's one with the sink works, and I threw it okay. out back, like over the fence. Right, um, yeah. That's so what I did. There's, I think there's like three options. I don't, I can't remember the other ones, but like there's definitely a few ways, but a lot of the ways backfire. What are the most nonsensical places to put the keys? Those, th those places work. Mm -hmm. In the vases. In the vase. It's like the, the one. Yeah, I'm like, uh, who doesn't think this is going to be found? You know? Um, so yeah. Anyways, once I figured I could throw it out a window, I was like, cool. He's definitely never finding that. And this guy is not driving and he's going to be A-OK. -okay. And then what we end up finding, uh, 
is he you convince him to take the bus because he can't find his keys and you're thinking score he's going to be safe he's not going to get into the car accident and the flashback you get is you get to the front door and you see he's totally fine but uh but chloe is not and she comes wheeling in uh as a quadriplegic it seems like in a in a wheelchair smiling to see you clearly not having gone through the trauma of her father's death but but through some trauma nonetheless i was i don't want to say this this seemed like a predictable outcome like this seems to happen a lot in in these sort of like films or literature whatever when you cause something to happen there's always an equal butterfly effect there's an equal and opposite reaction i thought she was just going to be dead uh but in this case the father just greets you and like oh big city max we didn't think we'd see you again. And that's when Chloe just like slowly wheels up and it is like, it's the way the episode ends. And I think that to me was the only valuable piece of this entire episode was this last 20 minutes. It was a great reveal. Yes. Great reveal. Agreed. Yeah. I I distinctly remember that being one of those cliffhanging hooks that just kept me playing. And one of the reasons why it drove me to binge this whole series in one sitting. Um, However, on this replay, I have to admit, and I I haven't processed these feelings, but I'm a little more conflicted about the use of like a disabled person as shock value. Um, And I I don't mean to go on a tirade about something I have no expertise in, but it just, I, I felt a little bit of a twinge of just kind of unsettling I, I don't know where to place those emotional reactions um it definitely felt like a devastating shocking thing when i first played it and it kept me narratively hooked to figure out okay we probably have to change this in this in the way that like we've saved chloe's life before we just saved the father's life um but like I, it i don't know i guess we'll have to talk about it more next episode when we see the implications of this but um for some reason it just didn't land with me as well as it did the first time here so I totally assume that the remainder of the game is us trying to undo this decision and make it okay. Um, but this actually seems like, in the grand scheme of things, the optimal outcome. Um, and, and like, bear with me for a minute. The alternative is her loving father being dead and Chloe having these real serious abandonment issues that drives her to have horrible grades, get kicked out of school... Uh, and, and just generally be unhappy. It's one of the things that we talk about in the drive home, I think, from the diner, that she's just unhappy all the time. Uh, and the alternative is, yes, she is. She has some some disability. Like I don't know if she's quadriplegic or what. I don't think we get like enough context to say. But she, she looks like the happier version of her younger self, mm-hmm. uh, just a little bit more grown up. Um, she greets you with a smile. She doesn't seem like she's uh, been through that that horrible trauma of her father dying. And she gets her father in the scenario. So without like diving all the way down like the hedonic treadmill explanation, like this actually seems like a, a real win at the end of the day. As much as it is played for a real gut punch mm-hmm. and something that we can't live with this absolutely seems like net positive uh in in my eyes and but maybe i'm looking at this like too rationally from a from from the lens of like an adult and maybe i should be thinking of this more from like a a young adult's perspective where you know this is the 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 potentially foregone optionality in their future mm-hmm. is is the real devastating element yeah, and there's also, like, implications for Max herself, like, in terms of, like, once this, like, sort of Polaroid montage sequence where we see the past being changed repeatedly happens, um, all of a sudden, like, there's, like, these positive memories that are being reinstated, but we we kind of, like, almost, like, wake up or, like, regain consciousness as Max on campus with, like, Victoria and, like, some of, like, the burnout and, like, rich preppy kids and, like, they're talking the about... Like, club. Yeah, they're going to go clubbing and they're going to go smoke weed in the bathroom and just, like, all sorts of just things that don't quite feel right and i wonder like what kind of person max is when she wakes up on the other end of this transformative decision as well um so it's a, it's a question of like qualitative change as much as it is quantitative change here again this feels like the optimal trolley problem scenario or outcome <laughs> yeah. like it really is a trolley trolley problem um so 
in utilitarian ethics, there's this framework of the the trolley problem, which is uh, there are you know there's a train coming down the track. There's two people tied to it. If you pull this lever, uh, it will go down a separate track and kill one person. Uh, and so the the calculus, and you know, there's a lot of different scenarios. How many people survive? How many people ultimately die? But the 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 concept is to highlight the calculus of utility and what a life is worth. But then on, on top of that, the uh, the ethical uh, implications of you taking an action or not taking an action. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you then responsible for it if you have pulled the trigger and have, have ultimately caused someone's death? Um, but what I think is crazy about this as like a, a very good trolley problem is that Max also seems like she comes out positive at the end. Like, she would not be in the Vortex Club or this well-regarded socially, uh, it seems like, had uh, had she not effectively pulled this pulled this lever and, and diverted the trolley. Um, I'm I'm not suggesting that the Vortex Club is the most well-adjusted group of kids, but if you think back to the uh, permanent records of a lot of them, you know Max and Glowy are the ones with the worst GPAs and and. Uh, that actually reminds me how cringy Max's uh, permanent record was written because yeah. it was written as the most relatable, uh, <laughs> most relatable piece. Of every person, you know, it was it was the worst. Um, but yeah, all of that to say, like, it seems like she's well regarded uh, around kids who generally do well, uh, and who also knows how the Vortex Club kids turn out uh, with Max's input and and influence. You know, so there's just so I, I agree with you, Flora, that it gives you this uneasy, unsettling feeling when mm-hmm. you when you flash into it and realize where you are and who you're with and what your relationship dynamic is with them. But as I reflected on it, I was like, this is a net net positive all around based on everything they've showed us. Just simply put, like someone is someone is no longer dead. Right. So even the most simply put. We do also see like the immediate like consequence downstream ripple effects of this decision, like changing the past yet again. Like the arguably the whole reason that any of the consequences we've seen, like the anomaly weather events, for example, are happening because Max has changed what was otherwise fated to happen in the very beginning of the first episode where Chloe gets shot. Um, and here, this change impacts, like, there's there's not a dramatic weather change, but we see, like, whales washed up on the beach and stuff as well, which presumably, like, I wonder, back to the point about birds, if that's somehow, like, linked there, um, and, and I, I had hinted in our Discord discussion before we hopped in the call here that one of my notes was, like, Death Stranding, question mark, um, the reason being, um, on, on Arcadia Bay's beach shore, um, that, like, the whales washed up, it's, like, almost identical to the trailer um the very first trailer for death stranding um where we see like just all on the beach which narratively in death stranding is an important thing um i I just kind of couldn't help but see some weird parallels like visually between the two games i would i would not imagine that those are actually in any way like linked but um it, it was just kind of a weird just again vibes the episode mike i want to take it back to the prediction you had where you said the rest of the game is just going to be undoing what happened in this episode can i make a different prediction yes i think that what's going to happen in episodes four and five um four will obviously be undoing what was done teaching you the consequences of your powers um while also learning something really deep about chloe potentially chloe potentially something really deep about yourself and i think like episode five is going to be like solving the whodunit to me that's what's going to happen absolutely i I think i think that's you have to think like a dumb dumb like this guy buddy you got to think about like what is the cw version of this show you're like you know philosophically let's talk about trolley theory or whatever you said the trolley problem the trolley problem and i'm like riverdale Look, you're the subject matter expert in this YA uh, universe. Smee you know? is me, buddy. So uh, stick with me and I'll teach you a thing or two. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll stick right by you. 
do we have any more thoughts about uh, episode three, Chaos Theory of Life is Strange? I see three heads going back and forth. So I think that's going to do it for us this week. Um, again, thank you both for, for coming on and talking about this game. Uh, we're going to continue with episode four, uh, likely in about a month from now. Uh, so stay tuned. Uh, if you like this show and you're not subscribed, what are you doing? It is so easy on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts to subscribe to the show because I know based on the analytics that some of y'all aren't subscribed or following. So make sure you do that if you've made it this far through the show. Uh, and then if you want to follow us on other social media platforms, you can do so on Twitter at Left Behind Club and on Instagram at Left Behind Game Club. We've got a great Discord community that is talking about this game uh, little by little as it comes out. Flora, I'm going to insist that you share your uh, little image that you shared with us in our little private chat. Um, Your Maslow's hierarchy of needs, (laughs) but y'all's thoughts on episode three. (laughs) It was uh, Chef's Kiss Fantastic and needs to be in the Discord immediately. Uh, You can find the link to our Discord at uh, leftbehindgame.club slash Discord. Uh, that's all the things about our show. Flora, where can you be found on the internet and what are you working on right now? Um, you can find me on Twitter at LudoNarrativeFM. Um, and right now I'm in the middle of, I just beat Elden Ring. Um, I'm playing Ghostwire Tokyo. And so like, I'm kind of writing about those things. I also have a video that I'm kind of like tweaking around in the background, uh, which I might be putting up later. Um, and so you can catch my work at epiloggaming.com and definitely hop in the discord where I'm pretty much in there every single day talking to people. So. Mike, you can you? find me on or at RuflowM on most social places online, um, and and you can find me at michaelruflo.com and .ca, and you can also find me in the Discord when I have a spare moment, which these days is few and far between. But you know, I'm there when I can. Jacob, where can the fine folks find you at? Uh, you can find me on all major social media platforms at Jacob McCourt, J-A-C-O-B-M-C-C-O-U-R-T. I would say if there's one thing I could encourage you to do is follow me on TikTok because I'm making daily TikTok content. Again, at Jacob McCourt. Uh, and maybe just find your favorite video and comment something like Smee is me if you are a fan of this <laughs> and a fan of that. Like, just comment and we'll see if we'll see how many people do that. You got all that hot, hot, hot Nintendo news. Uh, that's, I mean, you got hot news across gaming, but it seems like you got your finger really on the pulse of the Nintendo stuff. Hot, hot news about Nintendo and a bunch of memes that uh, I have to learn what they mean. So, <laughs> Smee is me, baby, when it comes to TikTok. Love uh, it. Love thank it. you, Mike. What do we say to him when we close the show? And that, my friends, is one less game left behind.